in the Pali Canon, there's a story of this guy called Hataka. And um, Hataka has obviously been a disciple of the Buddha. Perhaps the Buddha's been through his village and, or town. And then the Buddha's gone away for some considerable time. And then when the Buddha comes back, he f discovers that Hartika has gathered a large community, a large Dharmic community around him. And he says, Hartika, how did you do that? How did you gather this great big community? And Hartika replies, well, I, I did what you told me. I did what you said, Lord. I uh, practiced uh, dana, generosity, priyavadita, kindly speech, artacharya, beneficial activity and Samanatata um, exemplification. And in his seminar on the Vimalakirti Nidesha um, Sutra, Bhante tells us uh, that this is what a center should be doing. It should be gathering a community by the practice of the Samgrahavastus. <clears throat> and he says, well, that's what a Bodhisattva does. A Bodhisattva gathers a community around themselves, um, a community imbued with the Dharma. Um, that's what a bodhisattva does. But we shouldn't think of ourselves as bodhisattvas. That's perhaps putting ourselves on a bit too much of a pedestal. But we could think of ourselves as creating, coming together with others to create a bodhisattva so that our groups or our centers are a bodhisattva. We create a bodhisattva among us, which engages in bodhisattva activity. And we, as, as it were, one of the hands of Avalokiteshvara, uh, engage in that bodhisattva activity. Um, and in the Vimalakirti Nidesha, um, there's a chapter on pure lands or Buddha fields in which uh, it's said, well, a Buddha field, a pure land, it's not a place, it's a field of sentient beings. Um, so it's a Sangha, it's a community, it's an environment. And in that seminar, Bhante says, well, that's what we should be creating. We should be creating what he calls mini pure lands in the impure land around us. Uh, that's what a center does. And that should be part of our activity, gathering a community through the practice of the Sangrahavastus, creating, if you like, a bodhisattva, creating a pure land in which people can flourish and practice the Dharma. <clears throat> and um, that can be like a prevailing myth. It can, be, it, can be, it can give structure to what we do. And it can be like a, a prevailing myth that we can share with others and... Um, that transforms, can transform um, our teaching, our work as in, in centers or groups, make it part of our, very much part of our practice so that uh, burnout is avoided, so that it becomes some, an inspiring part of what we do. So yeah, so Bhante's message is very much, um, we should be, um, we should be coming together well, what a center, what a group is, is um, we do that by practicing the Samgravastus to gather a community around ourselves. And there's, there can be a myth around this. It's the myth of creating a bodhisattva. It's the myth of ourselves being, um, if you like, the arms of that community, uh, of, that, of that bodhisattva. <clears throat> so um, that's what I'm going. That's what I'm going to talk about. Really, I'm going to talk about uh, that creating community through samgravastus and um, community, spiritual community, positive community is contagious. So I've called the um, I've called this session creating a, a contagious center or contagious group, but I think it should really be called creating a contagious community 
because it's the community that we that we create around ourselves which is contagious which will attract people um, we don't have to do it all ourselves it's not like you know my massive charisma attracts all these people it's our community which will attract people and community is really attractive um, People are hungry for community. They're hungry for positive community. In our society, they just don't get it very often at all. And it's such a part of being human that people are really hungry for it. Uh, <clears throat> and I think it can be one of our unique selling points to use marketing language. Sorry to use marketing language, but I think Sangha is one of our unique selling points. And we should make as much of it as we can because it's really attractive. It's contagious. Uh -uh. Um, so what we're doing in our centers, in our groups, we're not just teaching the Dharma. Teaching the Dharma is part of it. But unless we see that in the context of creating a community, we can sometimes be wasting our time because we know, I mean, we probably know from experience that people can come and they can learn techniques and try and take them away and practice them on their own, but it rarely works. The pressures on people are so strong. Um, to live a more worldly life, that unless we mutually create a supportive environment among ourselves, it's not going to work, basically. Um, it's not going to work. So, um, community. So, I'm going to, so my big emphasis is going to be on creating a positive community. Um, and I think several things about that. I think, for a start, talk it up from the start. Talk from the start. Say, this is what we're trying to do. We're not just teaching. You know, from an introductory course, we're not just teaching the Dharma here. We are seeking to create a community. And we'd like to invite you to partake in that community. Um, this is what we're doing. Um, and for ourselves, I think it helps to have a clear model, a clear model of what we're doing. Now, you may already be doing this, uh, maybe without sort of consciously thinking about that's what you're doing. But I think it really helps to have a clear model or even a myth about what we're doing. Um, so yeah, we're, we're coming together with others to create a bodhisattva, where, of which we can, we can be part of the bodhisattva activity of that. And that, that myth, that model can guide what we do. It guides what we do, it tells us what we do, and it tells us what we don't do. There are things that it implies that we do, and it's things that we implies that we don't do. And I think I'll try and bring out some of those uh, as we go on. Um, it tells us we're not a few things. We're not a business. Um, we're not an edu ed adult education institute. We're not a community centre which different, all sorts of different people can come and do their things at. Um, we're creating a Buddhist community um, on the basis of the Samgrahavastus. Um, among the advantages of that myth is it makes it part of our practice. It's part of the practice of an aspiring bodhisattva to gather a community around themselves that's sort of imbued with the Dharma. So it makes it part of our practice. Uh, and when it's part of our practice and then part of our sort of myth, um, well, that avoids burnout. That means that we, you know, this is what, this is what we do as our practice. It's, it's a really big part of our practice. So um, <coughs> I think part of it is, is Talking up that myth, talk up that myth, talk, share it with others, make it part of the public myth of the group or the or, or, or the centre, <coughs> so that it um, you know it, it, so that it um, inspires that, inspires the sort of um, involvement that doesn't involve burnout, um, 
and involve people as much as possible, involve people as much as possible, as early as possible in what we do. Uh, so that it is a community thing, it's not something I do and you lot receive it. Um, and yeah, so the model, uh, and Bantu tells us this is what a centre or a group should be doing, is doing this, creating this community by the practice of the Samgravastus. And um, so that's what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking under the heading of the Samgravastus about how we uh, can go about creating community, um, creating a contagious community. And I'll be talking from my experience in Sheffield, actually. Um, yes, and um, well, I have to say that, I mean, so I've seen it, I've seen Sheffield from uh, the very first class, which myself and Surya Prabha ran in a front room, um, to it being a very, very big and thriving centre. Um, but um, we didn't start consciously practicing these, uh, the, the, some of the principles I'm going to talk about until quite a long way on in that, in that process. And that process was very uneven. It took, uh, the, for a long time, we were, frankly, quite a sleepy center, quite a sleepy center. Whoa! <laughs> that woke us up, yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, I remember when I first became Mitra convener, it was probably about 2001, I, um, I said to an order member who shall remain nameless to, for their protection, but who at the time was uh, supposed to be looking after us from Padmaloka, they were their uh, rep at Padmaloka, and I said, well, when are you going to come and visit us? And he said, what's to visit? So an awful lot, an awful lot of the growth uh, of the sort of um, the change that happened in Sheffield happened over uh, not many years. And it happened when we started consciously applying the principles that we're talking about now. It just went, it was a step change. There was an absolute step change that I think these, some of these principles were responsible for. Um, so yeah, um, now... So I have to admit then that my experience is of using the sort of things I'm talking about is much more of uh, helping a small centre to grow into a big centre than it is with a group, you know. It's, uh, but I think, I think some of the same principles are applicable. I hope they are. And I think it would also be good to sort of have these things in mind for the future. This is the direction in which we want to go. These are the foundations on which we want to build what we're doing so that when we do get a bit bigger, uh, they, re they really blossom. I think it would be really good to have that, that sort of in mind. And I also think that they would, um, they're also applicable in, in, in a smaller context, actually. Um, so, yeah, and I mean, uh, the other thing I'd say is um, it's possible to grow quite quickly, actually. So I'd encourage people to be ambitious. I think it is possible to grow very, very quickly. Um, so be ambitious. Um, Okay, so that's a bit of preamble. Any sort of questions or comments on that? Talking about the, the, the Goldfish Bowl theory, so did, did you get your centre and then it grew? Or did it... it had started before we got a new centre, but um, really the big growth did happen when we did get a bigger centre. And it couldn't, actually, it couldn't have happened in our other centre because we couldn't have fitted them in. That's what I'm thinking. 
Well, I, I don't, you know, just having a big building doesn't doesn't guarantee you got a lot of people. And when we when we got that, there was actually quite a lot of opposition and people saying, well, what do we want with this? We'll never use this. We'll never use this shrine room. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. It's just going to cost us a load of money. And um, so, I mean, again, I think just be ambitious. Um, yeah, and um, I think when you really go for it, it's as though the universe starts to help. I was just wondering why um, you said um, it was more appropriate more from, uh, from going to a small centre to a large one rather than a group, and I was just wondering what you meant. Well, I just, meant that, I just meant that that's my experience. Yeah. Of, we didn't identify and start to really put consciously into practice some of these principles until, frankly, we came to the point where we thought, this isn't working. How are we going to really ginger this up, basically? So my experience of, of using this was of um, being part of a group of people who turned a, turned a small centre into quite a thriving one, rather than um, we didn't use... When we were a little group, we, we, hadn't become con we hadn't consciously articulated these principles, OK? But that doesn't, I don't think that means they're not applicable. No. But you might have to just rethink about how they are, really. Okay, so um, yeah, so Bante, we, what a center, what a group is doing is gathering a community through the practice of the Samgrahavastus. Um, creating a community of mutual generosity. Um, and, and a community of mutual generosity is also highly contagious. Generosity is contagious. Uh, so we can't demand of others that they are generous. Um, and um, good old Hartika back in the Pali Canon, he didn't say, um, well, what he said was, I did it by practicing dana, by practicing generosity and the others. So it was him practicing dana that sparked it, that made it happen. And um, generosity is... Um, contagious generosity sparks generosity generosity creates generosity so I do think you know it has to sort of start with us and obviously that has to be within whatever context we can manage that but I am going to suggest that um, it's a really good idea to get as close to a dana economy as possible and by, and by a dana economy I mean a situation where you can honestly say this is a free class this is a free class if you'd like to make a contribution. Well, even not even that. This is a free class, just that. It's a free class. And that is covered by um, the fact that those people who are involved at a deeper level actually want to make contributions, actually want to make contributions. Dana, you have, you have to want to give to create Dana. They really feel this is their community and they want to contribute to it. So you're not making it as it were, you're just able to invite people in without saying, come in and it'll cost you. You're inviting people in for free and because there's a core of people who are committed enough to say, this is my community, I want to see it grow, I want to see it thrive. So that would be my idea of what a Dana economy is. And okay, that may not be possible. I mean, a, a true dana economy like that, it may not be possible in the short term. Um, it, 
it's um, so, but I think we can, you know, I, what I'm suggesting is moving in, in that direction. And, and I think you could do that by just changing the language. I mean, already giving Dharma, giving Dharma classes, running a center, running, a, running a, a, a group, it's already a generous act. You're already being generous. But if you give the, if we give the impression that we're charging for that, that generosity will be completely hidden. It will just seem like more of that marketing economy. I'll do this for you if you give me that. So I think just changing the language so that there's no hint of charging. Um, not even a hint, I would suggest, of a suggested donation, which feels ever such a lot like a charge by another name. Um, no hint that, well, the norm is that you put fiver in a dana bowl. No, you just that it's, it's free. So, for example, if you, you know, you've got to rent a hall, you've got to rent a room uh, to, run your, to run your group. Um, it, the sort of language I would suggest is this, this is a free class. This is a free class. If you'd like to make a contribution, that would be great. Yeah? And that's, that's we're exemplifying generosity. And then no pressure. It's not like the Dana Bowl goes round and, you know. Um, <laughs> the Dana Bowl is just there and people can put it, put money in in the tea break if, if they like. And that, that might sound really risky. That might sound really risky. Um, but you might be surprised at the results. You might be surprised at the results. So. The very last thing that we made completely dana in Sheffield was retreats, right? So um, retreats cost us thousands to put on. And we'd always just basically had a charge and a concessionary rate for them. And one, one day we said, let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. And this is quite risky. And we said, after we said, this is a free retreat. If you would like to make a contribution, that would be great. The average cost per person on this retreat was probably 80 quid or something like that, but that, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. If you, it's a free retreat. We just want you to do the retreat, but if you'd like to make a contribution, that would be great. That was the first time we ever made a profit on a retreat. <laughs> there was a barrister there who gave us several hundred pounds. He said, well, I would give several hundred pounds for something of this quality for a weekend course. There was a, um, there was a, a, um, an accountant there who did something similar. We made a profit. Uh, we did it on our last two retreats, one here and one at, um, one at a place called Lockerbrook up in the Peak District. They both made a profit. And we really say this is a free retreat. It's absolutely no onus on anyone to give anything. The last one we did, we made a profit of 600 pounds on. So. You know, I mean, I, I think you might be surprised at how much generosity does create generosity. Um, so, you know, a bit of taking that risk. If you're willing to, I know it's probably your money on the line for the rent of the hall. Um, but if you're willing, you might want to just give it that, give it that, uh, you know, take that risk. And your generosity will create generosity. And it establishes... The sort of, yeah, just establishes the ethos. Um, so, yeah, uh, um, so in Sheffield, we've, we've done it over years. Like, we didn't just go, okay, we're not charging for anything and we go broke. We did it over years. But we've reached the point where all Dharma, all Dharma activities are, we just say they're all free. All Dharma activities are free. And um, 
that's completely covered by standing orders from uh, Mitra's friends and order members. Um, and it's got huge advantages, this. It's got huge advantages. Um, it makes um, everybody partners in a common project <coughs> rather than um, like service providers and customers. So it makes everybody partners in a common project. It allows you to just welcome people into the community. So you don't charge, if you're trying to set up a community, trying to grow a community, you don't charge people to join. It's the committed people who will be funding that community. Um, it uh, inspires people with its radicalism. It really does. It tells people we're different. We're not dancing to the same drum as that society out there. We're actually different. Um, and um, it really attracts young people as well. Young people are often very, very altruistic. And it really inspires, they re it really attracts young people and they're often broke, okay? So we've just noticed a sudden massive increase when we started doing this in, in, in young people getting involved. It also creates a completely different atmosphere. Um, it creates an atmosphere of, yeah, an atmosphere of community, the sort of atmosphere that, um, that was talked about earlier, that, you, know, uh, um, you know, an atmosphere of friendliness, an atmosphere of generosity. Um, so it creates a generous sangha. Over time, it, what it does is it creates a generous sangha. And I just don't have any doubts about that. So in the long run, it's just financially a really good idea. I'll give you some examples. I'll give you some examples. Back in 2014, we'd reached the point where, well, there was a couple of us working for nothing because we got a pension and there was somebody working there part-time and having another part-time job. And, and anyway, everything had expanded enormously. And we, so we went to the Sangha and said, we need, to, um, we need to double the number of people supported, more than double the number of people supported to keep this centre running on any sort of fair basis. And uh, that means we need to double the standing order income. And we just went to the Sangha with that problem and said, that's the situation. Uh, there's no onus on you to help, but if you'd like to help, that would be great. And we set a target of three years for doubling our standing order income. We doubled our standing order income in three months. That's how much people... And, and people said, well, the diner economy is just so great, I want to make it work. It went from... Not very much, actually. It went from 28,000 to 58,000 in three months. Um, with the gift aid, we managed to support six people on that. This year, we also said, we've got a little bit of a problem. We're actually running a bit of a loss. Could you help? And, um, well, we, we did that two weeks ago, and we've got uh, commitments of 13,000 a year extra standing orders since then. So it creates a generous sangha. Um, it creates a generous sangha. Um, we've got a lighting system in our great hall. It's running out of steam now. We've got a great lighting system in our great hall, which was given to us by a sangha member. It's worth lots of thousands. He just got, he, he runs a lighting firm. He gave it to us. Um, we've got a women's community that was entirely funded by loans from the sangha. Uh, Interest-free loans, many of them just very long-term. We've got a cafe, a right livelihood business, which was entirely funded by loans from the Sangha. Um, we have Sangha works days where, where we get loads of people turn up to work on the centre. There's loads of volunteers involved. So the point I'm making is it just generates a generous Sangha. 
over time because you've got that sense of we're partners in a common project. It really does have a huge effect. It really makes a certain sort of atmosphere. Now, I can see um, a few objections to this, and I've heard them from people. One is that it would be irresponsible. Uh, so if we just stopped charging, we could go broke. Um, well, if we're running a little group, um, there's not much risk involved because there's not many costs involved probably, but if you're starting to get into paying regular rent, regular mortgages especially, then you've got to take that seriously. Well, I'm not suggesting that um, you just go for it like that. So what, I'll just tell you what we did, okay? I'll tell you what we did. We used to have a system where it was a you know, there was an understanding that you put a certain amount of money in the diner bowl every time you turned up, basically. And we had a meeting um, where I said, I'd like an empty diner bowls policy. I'm trying to be shocking. I'd like to see the diner bowls completely empty. And what I mean by that is I'd like you to stop doing that. And I'd like you to think about how much you value this center and take out a standing order to that amount. Yeah? And so that, there was a response to that. A lot of people did that. And what that did is it gave us some guaranteed income. It gave us some guaranteed income that we could rely on. Dino bowls go like that. And sometimes there was peanuts in them. I mean, literally, we've had peanuts in them. <laughs> I suppose they thought we were going to eat them. Um, but th this gave us a guaranteed income. So that gave us somewhere to start. And we said to people, you know, if you want to take out a standing order, uh, if you'd like to be, you know, support this project, take out a standing order. And then uh, all, the Dharma, all the Dharma events you take part in will be free. They'll just be totally free. There will never be an ask. There will, we won't even ask for Dharma at those events. It will just be free. Do it at standing orders, then they become free events. So that was basically covering Mitra study, Sangha night, and weekend events. But it gave us somewhere we could sort of start to rely on. Then the next step we decided, um, well, let's try it for beginners classes, actually. Let's try it for beginners classes. And that was a bit of a risk because um, beginners classes uh, brought in quite a lot of money, actually. Okay, a lot of people and people were paying for them. So they were a bit of a cash cow for the center. So we tried that. And we, we didn't initially move to just saying, uh, just don't give us anything. We sort of said, this is a free course. We, uh, this is absolutely a free course. We really mean it. This is a free course. If you'd like to give a contribution, that would be great. Um, our income went down, yes. But our sangha went like that. And quite a lot of those people quite quickly took outstanding orders when they started to get more involved. And people were just inspired by the generosity. People are inspired by the generosity. We had people come. We have people come who actually live closer to another center. And they've told us the reason we come is because of the Dana economy. And it's not because they're broke, because one of them is really quite high up in social services and he gives us a massive standing order. But he just came because he thought the Dana economy, he was inspired by the Dana economy. Um, so it really does attract people. Um, and over time, it creates um, that sort of um, generous sangha that I've been talking about. So, you know, you don't have to do it immediately, but I'm talking about thinking about having a strategy for doing it in a sort of stepwise manner to move towards that. Um, 
So that would be my first objection. It's irresponsible. We're going to go broke. Well, think about the strategy for introducing it. Oh, the last, I should say the last one. I've already talked about retreats. The last big one was, oh my God, shall we do it for retreats? You know, this is our principle. Let's make retreats free. <laughs> and then I told you what happened. We started to make profit on, on retreats. Um, I suppose the next one would be, yeah, okay, well, we probably won't go broke, but we need to build up some reserves because we want to get a center in the future. We need to build up some reserves. Um, well, I've talked about how um, a diner economy actually generates a, a generous sangha. It creates a generous sangha that responds. I talked about how that responds to need. So I talked about how people responded when we needed to increase the size of the center team. So I would suggest that um, actually a more effective way of sort of growing for the future is to create a generous sangha to start with and then go to them with the need and say, look, we want to get a center. We want to rent a center. Uh, that's going to cost this much. You know, if you'd like to help, take out a standing order. Um, I would suggest that's a much more effective way of than, than trying to sort of claw in a bit in terms of in terms of class fees. Because one of the things about, about the diner economy is it, the sangha grows, the sangha gets bigger, and the more people you've got, the more, and it creates a generous sangha. So that would be my second obje possible objection. Mm. Going back to the idea of a diner economy for retreats, do you charge any sort of booking? That is a problem. That, that, I mean, we, we've sort of kicked that one around because we do ask people to book, and then we have had people who drop out, and it yeah, so that is an issue. It's one we've just born with. But um, we have a, usually there's a waiting list. Other people, we ask people, if you're not going to come, please tell us early. We do, there's probably a couple of people every retreat that just don't turn up. And they say, oh, this came up, that came up. And, but overall, we still, you know, it still covers itself or makes a profit. Right, yeah. You will, I mean, it's one of the things, you know, it's one of the things you just have to live with in a way. Just going on from that, I'm not quite sure of the words to use, but at, at what point do you ask people or, or suggest that people might like to give to Dharma? Is it on the retreat itself or is it before? We do it, well, we announce beforehand that this is a Dharma retreat, that it's free. And if you'd like to make a contribution, that would be great. And then on the retreat, at the very end of the retreat, we say that again. We say, this has been a free retreat. I hope you've really, you know, if you'd like to make a donation, um, there'll be somebody sitting at that table and you can go and see them and make a donation. Um, and a, a really practical point is it really helps to have a card machine at that point. Um, um, but yeah, that's what we do. That's what we do. Anyway, I'll, I'll make space for questions at, at, at the end. So that, those are sort of two of the objections I can envisage. It would be irresponsible in any way we need to build up some reserves. Um, the third one is, well, people won't value it. People don't value it unless they pay for it. Um, <clears throat> there's a certain amount of truth in this with our beginners courses that um, quite a lot of people come and dip in and dip out a little bit. But overall, what I, what I find is that if people don't pay for it, they feel grateful for it, actually. And the, the people who stick feel grateful for it. Um, so, you know, the, I recently 
we had an appeal because we needed, we were losing a bit of money. We lost £6,000 last year. And so we went to the Sangha and said, look, we need to, this isn't sustainable. How about, you know, if you want to help up your standing orders. And I, at the end of my little spiel, I said, any questions? And what I got was a, was a couple of udanas, a couple of inspired utterances about how grateful they felt to the centre and how how uh, how much they valued the diner economy it, you know the, the, there is a almost a palpable sense of gratitude which is why we get such a good response to um, re requests on the basis of need so i would say if people don't pay for it okay some people initially who haven't quite got the message will treat it lightly but in the long run um, uh, it if people don't pay for it, they just feel very generous to have had it, actually, to, to have been provided with it. And I think the, the benefits really outweigh the, um, the problems. Um, so, yeah, that's a bit about money, a bit about money. I mean, there's obviously other aspects to dana. Um, trying to create a culture of volunteering. Um, inviting people who seem keen very quickly to help, um, even to help with with classes, you know, even perhaps present classes if they if you can sort of really make sure they're presenting on on message as it were, um, but getting people involved as early as possible, um, and having big I'll talk about this a bit more having a team and inviting people as a team to support classes and just carry things around and do whatever. So that's a little bit about. Dana, the first of the Samgrahavastus. So, um, yeah, any questions on, on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think moving towards that, you know, if you've got a small group or a small centre, to, to move towards that, we have to be talking up the Dana economy all the time. We have to be talking up what we're doing. Uh, we're creating Sangha by the practice of the Sangrahavastus and almost bringing people up with that idea so that pe people that come along um, that grow up with that idea. Um, and yes, you know, Hartika did his business by being generous himself. So it all starts with us being generous. And that means the, as many of the order as possible being, being generous, just inculcating that, um, that uh, spirit. So in, so in Sheffield, quite a lot of our order members have, as it were, grown up in Sheffield and they've grown up with this ethos. So we are very lucky in that just about every order member does something at the centre and people do turn up, the people come to festivals, they come to Sangha Works Days when we sort of do the, do the, the work on the centre, they do volunteer. Yeah. Well, what we did... So most of most years, our appeal is incredibly low key. So we, we have a we have a, a policy that we don't make a lot of dana asks. So a lot of asks, I think, are counterproductive. So we shield our sangha from a lot of dana asks. Um, generally, we get standing orders in, and then the centre gives money away, rather than having lots of people come in and having lots and lots of dana asks. Uh, because I think people just get immune to it, basically. And we ourselves, we only ever ask once a year. So once a year, sometime around September, we will have a little thing where we say, this is a donor economy, if you'd like to make a standing order, that if you haven't already done so, that would be great. Most years, that's pretty, 
going to be a very patchy recording. <laughs> um, most years that's pretty low key actually. Um, what we do is when there's a real need, what we'd like to do is, is rely on the spontane spontaneous generosity of the Sangha and generally that's okay but when there's a real need and that's happened twice, 2014, 2018, we, um, we tell the Sangha there's a real need. And what we did this both those times is uh, so we give uh, somebody gives a talk, um, you know, ten five ten minutes before Sangha night before Mitra study, uh, and just lays it out, lays it out, and then says, if you'd like to help, if you know you'd like to help, we tried to avoid pledge because it sounds like it gets used a lot. So we said, if you'd like to help, fill in a commitment form, which just says I'd like to increase the the um, finances of the centre by such and such. Fill in a commitment form and put it in the commitment box. If you don't, if you're not sure and you'd like to think about it, well, go home, think about it. If you do make a standing order online or something, tell us about it so that we know. And we set a sort of end date. So we said, please get back to us by this by this date because we need to plan. So we need a date when we can say this. You know what's happened basically. So yeah, we do have pledge forms by another name uh, because it's good to strike while the iron's hot. I mean, one of the things about um, people's generosity is um, there can be a big gap between the desire and the execution. So if people take a form home, it can end up in a drawer and they really meant it at the time, but it sort of gets rather forgotten about. So yeah, I think striking while the iron's hot is quite good. Do you get uh, gift aid by we get gift aid, yeah. yeah. <coughs> we don't let people like that book. <laughs> I mean, it's only advertised within our Sangha. Right, okay. That was um, so, you know, it never comes to the notice of anyone else. And It might go on the website, but it would go on a bit of the website called Going Deeper, and it would make it plain that this is for people who have done an introductory course and an intermediate course. Right. No, we do have Dana bowls, but it was a bit of a it was a bit of a sound bite. I want an empty I want empty Dana bowls. It was asking people to stop just putting their fiver or whatever into the Dana bowl when they turned up. Think about how much they valued the centre. Uh, how important was it in their life compared to a meal out, compared to a round of drinks, compared to a gym membership? How much do you value the centre? Think about it. Make an adult. Um, considered decision about how much you would like to contribute to this project. Um, so making it more, yeah, making it more dana rather than almost a should of that money in the dana bowl. So it didn't mean we took the dana bowls away, um, but it just meant it was a bit of a, it was a, a slightly shocking sound bite that I wanted to, to, to get people to think about. Well, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I think you've got to look at your own circumstances. You've got to look at your own circumstances. I would question the idea that the only way to keep people coming back is to is to charge for it. I mean, I, yeah. I've tried to deal with that. It's not that people don't value it if it's free, I don't think. You've got to look at, I mean, I would I would suggest, you know, it depends where you're at. If what you're doing is renting a hall, putting on a putting on a class in that hall, I would suggest take that risk that I suggested, which is say this is a free class. If you'd like to make a contribution, please do. 
uh, even you might say, well, we're paying 100 quid for this. It's a couple of, you know, five or each if you wanted to. It, um, maybe not even that, maybe not even say that. But if you just say, you know, if you want to make a contribution, we do have to pay for the hall. Take that risk. I mean, it just changes the it changes the um, message that's given from as a charge to, hey, we're doing this just to spread the dharma, and if you'd like to help, that would be great. Um, you know, and then as I said, retreats were the very last thing we did mm. because uh, you know maybe you need to have already generated a bit of a generous sangha to take that risk because that's quite a big risk. So I think just you have to look at your own situation and have a sort of strategy for moving towards it that's not going to send you broke. And partly it will depend on how much personally you're willing or other order members or other people are willing to be generous. Take a risk with your own money, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, a piece, uh, we, we moved towards it uh, in pieces. Initially, just Mitra study, Sangha night, and weekend events for regulars, then introductory classes, mm. then retreats. We still charge. We do yoga and Tai Chi and we charge for them. Oh. Numbers. Uh, when I think, I, think, I think when I took over as Mitra convener, in 2001, I think there were about four men Mitras then, and um, I used to joke that they were all covered in cobwebs. Um, I shouldn't. <laughs> uh, there are now 60 men Mitras. Um, we might get um, between 12 people at Sanganite, and Sanganites are really deadly, actually. I mean, people, people would go to beginners' classes and think, oh, this is great, and then they go to Sanganite and think, oh my god. <laughs> We, our record at Sanganite is, uh, so actually this was earlier this year we had 100, but we've got a very big shrine room. The lowest we get these days is 40. We think it's a bad night if we get 40. Average is 60 to 70 on Sanganites. Uh, um, we've got a very big hall. I mean, I know not everybody could do that. Um, we've got 160 metres. Uh, altogether, uh, maybe more than that, the 60 men, I don't know, I've lost track of the women, I can't count the women, there's just too many of them. Um, okay, not all of those, uh, most of those are sort of active, but not, not all of them, some of them are sort of... How many order members? That's a really good question. Actively involved. I'm going to guess 30. I mean, but involved at all sorts of different levels. Um, Maybe more than that, maybe 40. I mean, almost all the order members in Sheffield do. From um, leading Mitra study groups, um, to just turning up. People do just turn up, and that's, you know, that's, a, that's an involvement. Turn up for festivals. Um, really, really sort of closely involved in teaching classes teaching the mainstream classes, probably not that many, six or eight, uh, maybe a bit more. Um, we do, well, I'll talk about this when it comes to teaching, but we do have, um, we don't just throw the teaching open to everybody. There is an unfortunate fact that some people are much more attractive in their teaching than others, and some people are much more on message than others. 
not everybody's a great teacher, but uh, in terms of volunteering, so there's a lot of volunteering, you know, so we have um, what we call Sangha Works Days where we've got a big centre and people just turn up and do things. Um, yeah, it's, um, I mean, we've grown to be quite a, quite a big centre, but an awful lot of that growth has been in not that long a, not that long a period. Uh, one of the things that's happened is we've had quite a few people ordained. We had five people ordained last year. Uh, we had five requests in the last two months, and, and people have moved to Sheffield, actually, as well. Um, so it does, the community attracts. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't give you exact numbers. I, I should have counted up. Yeah. When it started, there were two of us doing all the teaching. Pretty much all the teaching. Um, we really went for it, but we did most of the teaching. Um, so um, I do think you know I do think it's possible to have quite a sort of sharp takeoff. If but we were committed and full time and all that sort of thing. Um, but you've got to work with, as I said, my, you know my my experience of using these principles is more turning a smaller centre into a, a into a much more lively and bigger one. You've got to work with where you are. I mean I don't think there's any um, magical bullet that works everywhere. I think you've got to look at your look at your situation, look at your resources in terms of people and premises and dosh and the sangha you've got already. And um, but I just encourage um, thinking about how can we move in that direction? How can we move? How can we establish that atmosphere more and move, move in that direction more, rather than saying you've got to do it like us? Um, it's often it's not going to be possible. You're not going to be like you know. I mean, we've you can't have sangha nights with a hundred people because I think we've got the only shrine room in the country that can probably hold hundred people uh, actually. So I mean, it's interesting because on the Sicker project, the Sicker project was looking at how we can sort of make classes more effective, make centres work more effectively, and they chose really two flagship centres, which are the LBC and Sheffield. And they're completely different. And we couldn't do what the LBC does. And the LBC couldn't do what we do, because they haven't got as bigger space as we've got. And we have, uh, I mean, it, 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 it's going to have to be, the, honestly, the approach is totally different. Um, and they're both successful. So, I mean, I'm talking from our experience, which might be more applicable to a smaller situation, I think. I mean, the LBC is just a law unto itself, really. Mm -hmm. It's got such a, such a history of amazing people uh, and so many resources, and it's been there so long. Um, but they couldn't do our Sangonite. I mean, we make our Sangonite a very central thing. Order members go to it, Mitras go to it. Um, we put a lot of effort into making it really interesting. Um, uh, but they and it attracts a lot of people, but they couldn't do that because they haven't got space as big as we've got. So you know that you've got to judge what you do according to what you've got, basically. What do we do on our sanganites? Okay. So, so for a start, what we do is we have what um, we have a shared meal from six thirty. So at six o'clock, we have a centre team. We have a sang sanganite team meeting, and we're very keen to invite likely lads and lasses onto that. So um, those people 
some of them will lead discussion groups. Um, some of them occasionally give short talks if they're not order members. Some of them give, you know, they are the sort of main talk givers. Um, some of them wash up and um, do various things like that. But we make the point that one of the reasons you're here is just be friendly. Um, so we try and have a, a really big team. I mean, um, there might be 12 people turn up to the, the, initial, the initial team meeting. Might be more, actually. At which we report in, among other things, it's trying to create Sangha among the team as much as anything. Then we, and we have one person who is host for what comes next, which is a shared meal. So we have a shared meal from 6.30. Um, so we provide baked potatoes, again, a little bit of generosity, <laughs> and we invite other people to bring things to go with them. Um, the community upstairs usually makes something. We have one host from the Sanganite team who undertakes to create some, a dish, a really nice dish, a really nice big dish, and to welcome people and to say, if anyone's new to Sanganite here, you know, do this, do that. So that runs from 6.30 to 7.30. At 7.30, we have a talk. And we have a talk first rather than um, meditation first. Because we found that when we had meditation first, it creates a sort of quiet, refined, maybe awkward, maybe even precious atmosphere where people didn't really find it difficult to talk to each other. We wanted quite a lively atmosphere, even a slightly rambunctious at atmosphere that appealed to young people. We wanted people talking to each other. So we moved the meditation to the very end. We also thought that people aren't in a very good state for meditation when they've just had a meal. So we moved the meditation to the end. We start out with a talk, and those talks link together. So we have a theme, and it, so it's, like a, it's a bit like a course, but we make a big point of having them interesting. We try and have really interesting speakers. But they link together, and um, we tend to have bullet points that at least those talks are going to cover, so that there's a, a continuous theme. We don't want Sanganite to be a miscellany. They often can become a miscellany, where this person gives this talk, this person gives that talk, then this group comes in and does a fundraising appeal, this person doesn't come a book launch. That miscellany is very unattractive, I think, to people. So we try and have it, um, and we try and you know, gear it so that it's accessible, but still exciting. It's accessible to relative newcomers, but exciting enough that uh, we don't mind if some of it's a bit over the, over the top for, for newcomers. So yeah, we have a talk. We then break into discussion groups. So we always have a discussion group for one or two discussion groups for those people who have recently joined from an intermediate course. So they stay together with the people who led that course. So they'll be leading their discussion group and some of the team that were on that course. So those people sort of move through as a cohort and then they have their own sort of group on Sanganite. We also have men's groups, women's groups, and a mixed group. And sometimes, once a month, we have an under, under 35s group as well on Sanganite. Um, so there, so the next thing is a group, to dis a discussion group. And we think it's really important to have an opportunity for people to interact and talk uh, so they're not just on the receiving end. And then we have a tea break. And tea break is part of it. I, I'll say a bit more about making opportunities for people to talk is part of it. 
and then we have a meditation at the end. Every few, probably every six weeks, we make it a puja night and we have a big, um, we try and make it a real production. And that would include a group for newcomers about what puja is all about and some sort of reporting at the end. And it will include discussion groups for other people. It might be a short talk on some theme, some sort of discussion group about what people are going to get out of the puja or how they're going to, and then a puja. Um, so that happens about once every six weeks, maybe, usually in conjunction with the theme in some way. And probably once every six weeks, we have uh, three short talks, usually involving some GFR Mitras who are on the Sanganite team, on the theme. So we try and get some more people involved. So that's what our Sanganite looks like, basically. We try to make that really, the, that is really the focus, and we're able to do that because we've got such a big shrine room. Now, you know, um, that model works for us. It might not work in a different, just a different layout of centres. It might not work. You might have to. Th so the LBC does it differently uh, because they haven't got that big thing. They sort of, what they, they have, what they call um, um, a Buddhist centre each evening. So it's possible to sort of, um, come one, one evening and you get sort of all you get lot, lots of you, you move from one class to another on that evening that requires a lot of resources actually but uh, that way they're able to have large numbers come through without having such a big space as we've got but we try because we've got such a big space we try and use it to uh, have this sort of sangha night well that's varied we, <laughs> we used to try and do it for a year which was a bit challenging um, usually now for three months, which which fits in nicely with um, so our introductory course. We have a six week introductory course and a six week follow on course, and then those people are invited to Sanganite. I'm going to say more about teaching later, though, under Artacharya. So we usually now have a, a three month block, but I'd like, probably like to shift the conversation off the teaching and bring that in later, if that's okay, and just sort of go back to um, go back to the dana thing. Um, so I think it might be a good idea, unless there's any other questions, it might be a good idea to, um, I don't know, just um, get a chance to reflect and perhaps discuss. Um, do we give the impression that we're charging? Do we give the impression that we're charging? Could we, could we just by changing our language move away from that? Um, <coughs> are there ways we could be more generous? Um, even if only in our language, or are there ways we could inspire more generosity in our, uh, in our situation? Um, so you might just want to give a bit of thought to that. Uh, you know, do you, do, well, I suppose, do you agree? Do you agree it's a good idea? And uh, if so, how could you? perhaps take even very small steps towards it. Yeah. yeah, you need to ask confidently. I mean, I think the thing about um, money being dirty, I think, um, yeah, okay, money's not dirty, but also dana has to be freely given, not under pressure. Yeah. And I think some fundraising can definitely be emotional manipulation and pressure. So I think I think there's a bewaring about that actually that it really has to be if you would like to make a contribution that would be wonderful 
but there is absolutely no obligation on you to do so. And sometimes I think it can almost be that there is an implied, quite a strong implied should. And I think, I think that ceases to be dana then. It ceases to feel like generosity to the people who, who, who give. Yeah. You're, thinking, you're working against forward to, to do it. And then well, you do have to look at your own attitudes yeah. to money. I mean, you do have to be okay about asking. Um, but at the same time, you have to be totally okay about receiving a no. Yeah. Totally, totally okay about receiving yeah. a no. Um, and not trying to, you know, you need to be seeing people as people, not as pound signs, yeah. basically. Um, I ever do. <laughs> well, I mean, if anyone wants a good training, I think, on asking for money, I think doing a Karina appeal is a really good training for asking for money. Yeah, isn't probably, it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Karina appeal, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, well, I don't, I hope it hasn't changed, but it used to be very much, we only want money from people who want to give. You do not persuade, you do not pressure. Yeah. You give people an opportunity to give. And um, generosity inspires generosity. So you are generous. You are, in a way, making yourself quite vulnerable on the doorstep. And people will respond to that. Whereas if you come with your slick fundraising spiel, <coughs> you just get frozen, basically. Um, I think the, 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 some, of the, some of the philosophy, I, and I assume it's still there. It's a long while since I've been involved with that, but I assume it's still there. It's, uh, really underpinned the way we try to um, fundraise, actually. Well, it takes a while, yeah. I mean, it might not be quite 10 years, but it takes, it takes, it takes, it takes, <laughs> 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 it, 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 I mean, it, yeah, we're talking, but you know, I mean, what we're talking about is doing something which is a slow organic pro growth. Yeah, That's yeah. what happens at a, a group or a center. It's a slow organic yeah. process. Um, and it is an organic process. You set up the conditions, and I think, for me, the Dana economy is one of the really strong conditions. I'm absolutely convinced that it's played a huge part in the success of Sheffield, actually. Um, absolutely convinced of that. Right. Well, what I would do, well, I mean, okay, it depends on how generous you or whether your backers are willing to be, but what I would, what I would want to do is to say this is a free class, um, if you'd like to make a contribution, you know, it cost us, it cost us a bit to rent this place. Uh, if you'd like to make a contribution, please do. That's what I'd like to do. Um, and that just starts right from the beginning that this is free, but those that wish to contribute may do so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, we changed our culture and that took a bit of doing. It was a bit, um, it was a bit like, changing a, a tanker, you know, and there was a certain amount of blood on the walls around it as well. Uh, um, it wasn't unanimously popular. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, th I suppose I would encourage just use that, use that language from the start. And you might, I hope, I mean, our experience of doing that with retreats would indicate that you probably won't lose money. Um, but, you know, you've, those aren't people who have been introduced to the idea of the diner economy. I would talk up the diner economy, even on a very introductory level. The first night, I would say, you know, we intend to, our aim is to set up a community of, that's inspired by generosity. You may wish to contribute. Um, make that part of the, part of the um, ask, if you like. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what I would like to do... Uh, if it was me, because I, you know, it won't break m the bank, I would, I would, I would try and take that risk. 
but you'd have to decide whether that's the case. But there's no guarantee that if you charge, you're going to cover your costs either. Yeah. And if you advertise that it's free, you'll get more people. Uh, I can't, I'm not sure. I mean, it probably varies from thing to thing. I mean, we try to just say it's free. Um, on most of our publicity, I think we say we run on a data economy basis, a generosity economy basis. Um, yeah, yeah. But we, we, well, that, yeah. So you, well, you don't, yeah. But uh, you, I mean, so you don't trick people because you do say it's free. Yeah. When you get there, you say it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely free. Um, you know, I mean, we've had to change a few things. Like our website used to say, what does it cost? And I was saying, what do you mean, what does it cost? It doesn't cost anything. It's free. It used to say, what does it cost? What you give is up to you. No, that's the wrong language. That's the wrong language. Um, how much would you, you know, it's, it's free. How much would you like to give? Um, so what about... Yeah, absolutely. I think it's getting away from that transactional language and that transactional attitude um, towards one of, uh, yeah, of, of, of would you like to contribute to this? Um, yeah, in a way, we'd pay take the hit for a couple of years. All right, I mean, the more generosity there is, the more it will inspire generosity. But on the other hand, if you do at least ask for a, you know, suggest a possible yeah. contribution, it does give you an opportunity to talk about yeah, what you're trying to yeah, do, yeah. to talk about the fact that you're trying yeah. to uh, establish a donor economy, a community based on generosity. So, yeah. yeah. So on our... <coughs> I mean that's that's how we try and do it on the introductory classes. We talk about we, you know, and we I mean we're able to say, well, isn't it, you know, that's not going to work, is it? But well, look, um, and people's eyes light up actually. People's eyes light up at the idea. It's uh, it's very refreshing for people. Um, so I think you could use the use the you know, suggestion uh, as a way of talking about what you're trying to what you're trying to do. Yeah, I'd probably forget. But on the other hand, you know, uh, generosity inspires generosity. Um, so, I mean, I, if we can be generous, um, that will likely... Yeah. But, but I think you do have to talk about it. You do have to talk about that's what you're trying to do because it might just go unnoticed otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I understand um, that. It's just mm. the, I'm talking right at the first day. I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, I, th I, I mean, I'm thinking about this because I'm thinking at the moment what we do is um, we talk about the donor economy and we say this is a free course, but if you'd like to make a donation, we don't do that with anything else. Well, we do with retreats, actually, but we don't do that with Sanganite, for example. So no. I'm wondering about just saying this is a free course. Yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, you know, you might yeah. want to play that on by ear, but it would depend on how much risk you are willing to take. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I'd be, I'd be quite happy with, I'd be quite happy with talking a little bit, using it as an opportunity to say what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a community based on generosity. If you'd like to contribute, that's great. If not, it's free. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. In a way, that's what I'm saying. In a way, that's what I'm saying. You don't, I mean, I, the language I use is this course is free, but if you'd like to make a contribution, uh, that would be great. Uh, and I mean, I, I think it's fine for the more committed, the more committed people, I assume they are committed to the project. The project in, involves inviting people in, not putting, not putting a charge. If you can, you can, you can, you know, come in, but it costs you uh, or 
but 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 to just freely, really freely, be able to invite people in. Um, so I'm, uh, and I think that's understood. It's certainly in our situation that um, you know you what you're doing is you're not just contributing so that you can get. You're actually contributing to something which has got an altruistic outgoing dimension that you're part of. Well, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, they don't know that. But as I say, generosity inspires generosity. And I mean, you're immediately saying we are totally different. And I, I mean, I, I don't run meditation courses. I think there are, I'm going to say something about that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, you are teaching the Dharma. You're teaching the Dharma in, involves Dharma. That, you know, involves, you're teaching about how Dharma is part of the Dharma. Um, and I'm fine with it. I'm absolutely fine with it. And all I can say is, for us, it's really worked. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's what I'd encourage. I mean, as I said, I can't, you can't sort of say, do it this way. But what I would encourage is, you know, seek to move in that direction. Seek to inspire generosity by, by generosity, even if only generosity of language. And see how it goes. Um, you know, you, you may have to think, well, how much, you know, am I willing to make a little risk of a, a little bit of a hit on this? Um, but I would suggest, and we did take a little bit, you know, we got less money when we started to not charge, but to ask for donations for introductory classes, because those people hadn't been introduced to the ethos. But further down the line, the Sangha grew. Quite a lot of those people took outstanding orders. Further down the line, you get a different, um, a different, a different sort of outcome, really. And I think there is a problem. I think there's a problem about using introductory courses as a sort of cash cow, actually. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people are really, they're tired of the sort of mean-spirited culture that we live in, actually. They're tired of it. Um, so they're inspired by something which is a bit different. Brings us on to our next point. <laughs> yeah, it's not just, I mean, it's not so, it's not just generosity around money. There is other things. But also, Priyavadita, the second, the second of the two Samgrahavastis, which you could say is sort of generosity of speech, if you like. Um, I mean, Going back to Bante's uh, seminar on the Vimalakirti, he talks about, well, we, should see our, we could see ourselves as creating mini pure lands. So we're creating an environment of sentient beings. We're creating an environment in our communities. And um, to create, um, we create a world around us by our speech. We probably all know people who create quite an unpleasant world around them by their speech. We don't want to be near them. We probably all know people who you want to be near, you want to be around because they create a positive environment by, around them by their speech. We can choose what we speak about. We can speak about um, the positive, we can speak about the negative. Very often people are choosing to speak about the negative. Very often it's a bit like people go into the Taj Mahal and they spot the spider on the floor um, and talk about the spider rather than the Taj Mahal. So, um, yeah, we create, we create uh, an environment by our speech. So if we're going to create a mini pure land, we have to create a culture, an environment 
of positive speech, friendly speech, welcoming speech, encouraging speech, where people are encouraged to talk from what's best in them to what's best in the other person, so that that's brought out, rather than, as we often do, sort of discouraging, critical, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to, I think, part of, it, part of creating a contagious community is creating a community that is a positive world to be in. It's a, it's a community characterized by uh, Priya Vardita, by, by positive speech. Um, and thinking about how we do that, thinking about how we actually create that. Um, I've got a few suggestions. I think one is to simply talk about the role, simply say that, talk, say that we're trying to create a positive environment and we all create a world by our speech and so let's create a positive one among us. Let's just say that, say that in classes. Um, that's a big element. We, we have an intermediate course, which is not online yet, but will be, and that's a big element of the speech section. It's based on a Noble Eightfold Path. A big element of the speech section is um, come together with us and let's create a positive environment by our speech. Let's not, let's choose to speak the positive rather than as we usually do, choosing to speak the negative. Um, bring out what's highest in each other. Talk, talk to what's highest in the other person. Talk to their idealism, not to their cynicism. Uh, talk from your idealism, not from your cynicism. Um, so that yeah, just saying that, it's a bit like the diner economy. You have to say that's what you're doing, and you say you're doing this. Uh, and then people maybe get the message, and people do. I mean, people often exist in work situations that are really negative. They know what this means. They know what it's like to be in a place where there's a negative environment because of the speech. Um, and so they're hungry for it. Again, they're hungry for that sort of community. I think something else that we can consider is opportunities to uh, rejoice in merit. So again, in the speech section, in our intermediate course, we try every week to have something sort of really positive that people do. And one of the things we do is ask them to rejoice in somebody for three minutes and avoid the temptation to balance the picture. Yeah, you're just thinking of all the good things you can say about this person in three minutes. Um, and you do that as a group, and then you say, what, is, what does it feel like? What's the environment feel like? And then people say, well, it's, it feels great. I just, I'm just delighted to have heard about these people. It's, it's really quite uplifting. So making opportunities to rejoice in merits, I think, is really quite important. Um, and modeling this ourselves, praising people, um, <coughs> thanking people, and I think inviting people to contribute, I think that can be a way of positive speech. You know, you, you're, you're showing that you, you, you've, you've, um, you place some value on that person. Why don't you join this team? You know, you're, 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 you're giving affirmation, giving affirmation. So giving affirmation. Um, so yeah, um, Rejoicing in merits as a practice in its own right, as a way of just creating that positive environment. Um, and really nixing gossip, really sort of like, you know, that's so destructive of Sangha, just that sort of gossip. Um, um, and um, also, if, we, if, we, if we're going to create an environment of positive speech, we need to create an environment in which people speak to each other. 
So not just listening to a Dharma talk, meditating and going home. They have to, they have, to have opportunities to talk. Um, so tea breaks are an end in themselves. They're not just something you do to refresh yourself. They're an end in themselves. That's why we have a, um, this idea of a shared meal before, before Sangha nights. Uh, so just an opportunity for people to talk. I mean, it's, that's optional. Obviously, people can just come for Sangha night. But a lot of people come for the shared meal. And they talk. And they just talk. Um, creating other sort of social situations where people can just be together. Um, I mean, okay, you know, we've, we've been around a long time, but we've got a climbing cooler. We do happen to live next door to the Peak District. We've got, we have sang, what we call Sanger Walks. We try to get somebody to organise a Sanger Walk every, week, every um, month so that a group of Sanger go out together. We have um, Indian, Indian curry nights and uh, film nights and a choir and... Some of those, you know, some of the choir's great because they do things at festivals and whatnot, but it's also just opportunities, creating opportunities for people to be together. Mitra groups just going out for a meal, uh, people just going out for a meal with whoever the team is. Um, so I think if we're going to have kindly speech, we've got to have speech, and that becomes an end in itself. And that's part of the reason that we um, don't do meditation at the beginning of courses because we want people to be talking, not to be in some sort of internal space. Uh, we also have Sangha retreats, which are Sangha retreats. They're about, they're, we meditate on them, but they're not done in silence. They're about people getting to know each other. So, um, yeah, um, we need to create opportunities. So, yeah, I, th I think that's really important because... Um, it's great to create a community, but that community's got to be a pleasant place to be. And that world that that community creates, the, the, the pure land that they create, is largely created by their speech, actually. <coughs> so, Priyavadita. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's part of our culture, isn't it? It's part of our culture to be accepting, to not be judgmental of people, to, so that you can actually just reveal yourself. But it requires that atmosphere of trust, and friendliness, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So it does create that. And I mean, people say, you know, well, the minute I came here, everybody was just so friendly. I mean, so having teams also, having teams whose function is partly kindly speech. You know, they may have that job and that job. They may be leading a beginner's class, uh, uh, leading a discussion group, but most of their job is just kindly speech. And you can talk that up as, as a practice. There's somebody looking at the notice board furiously reading all the entries on the notice board. Well, really, um, face your discomfort. Go and have a chat with them. Um, and people really respond to this sort of thing, actually. Um, so I think, you know, we do it as a culture. It's part, it's part of our tree ratna culture. But I think really making it very, very conscious that interaction is part of what we're about. It's not all done in silence. Things like breaks, discussions are part of what we do. They're important. And the fact that we do just this, this whole idea of we're creating a mini pure land, and that is hugely created by the way we speak to each other. <laughs> yeah. We have done, yeah, 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 yeah. I, well, I think they're great. I think they're absolutely wonderful. And they do do this, don't they? I mean... Um, 
So we've done it on retreats and, you know, as usual, you get some, well, you usually get some people who get really furious. <laughs> some people are really angry. Some people who can't do it with a straight face and just avoid the discomfort by laughing and joking. Um, and I always, I mean, I always say, you know, if you get angry, notice. If you feel like laughing, notice. Um, don't try and escape into one of those. Um, and then people, you can't separate people. We say, well, we're, I mean, I've done it where I've just walked out of the room and everybody's just furiously chatting to each other. I think they're great, but you do need a bit of um, bottle because people really don't like them. It's, they don't like them initially, but they really do, really do have a positive effect. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, anything like that. Um, I do also think that um, we can have a bit of a culture of one-to-one -one all the time. I think going out on groups, going having group walks, that sort of thing, where it doesn't always have to be intense one-to-one -one discussion. Um, but making just more things a bit more sociable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's what we do on our weekend retreats. We always have a group walk in the afternoon. As I say, we do make it, it's a Sangha retreat. We call it a Sangha retreat. It's about Sangha. There's meditation on it. There's Dharma teaching on it. But a big part of it is just um, get to know people. Get to know people in this different context. Okay, uh, how are we doing for time? Oh, the clock there. That's all I've got to say for the morning. I don't know if there's any questions or comments. Or we teach them at the end, meditation at the end. Of the night. Yeah, not. So we have Dharma, Dharma input, um, break, meditation, and we don't do any meditation teaching on its own. I'll talk about why later. Um, no, I don't think you can build Sangha online. I don't think you can have a sang online Sangha. Um, uh, <laughs> Sorry? You can advertise online. You can listen to talks online. I mean, now you were saying Free Buddhist Audio is your Sangha. I mean, so, but what I don't want is people who could come and talk actually like a human being face to face, who actually try and interact with a machine and and the top three inches of their head to the top of some three three inches of somebody else's head. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I don't think we totally avoid it. When we have urban retreats, one of the ways sometimes people keep in touch with their buddy group, as we call it, is, is through email or WhatsApp or text or whatever. Um, but I personally think there's no substitute for being in, in the same space as somebody else. You've actually got a body. You're not actually just your verbal facility or your whole being. I mean, there's so much we take in from just being with somebody else, you know, expression, tone. I mean, it's very difficult to feel warm to somebody online. Uh, if, you're, if you're with somebody face to face, you want to be their friend. You want to get on with them. You want to be in harmony with them. But uh, often, if you're just interacting through words on a screen, that's just not that's just not there. You know, just I mean, for us, we couldn't do that because we the numbers are a bit big. 
but I mean I think we do the same sort of thing by having always every class splits up at least once into uh, into discussion groups and so it gives people a chance to talk and it's about relating what they've heard to their life so um, you know the very first week it's about why you're here um, so some for some people that's because this has happened that's happened for some people it's something uh, very different but I think just making opportunities for people to talk openly with each other you know um, is, is is vitally important um, sometimes the reporting in for my taste can get a bit too um, I mean we do it in Mitra groups we do it in center team groups it, sometimes for my taste it can get a bit too focused on me and my feelings um, a little bit um, I've tried sometimes to make it a little bit more structured. So how about reporting in on ethics, meditation and wisdom or something like that? Um, so that it doesn't. So, the, I mean, the two dangers are it just becomes a bit self-indulgent. And the other one is that you tell people what you did on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, both of which I would like to avoid because it's so boring. <laughs> um, don't know about others, though. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I mean, people have got a tremendous tendency, especially men, actually, I'll, I'll stereotype here, but to make it abstract. Um, yes, people do this. Yes, you know. Um, one of the, I mean, I, you know, I mean, that's just part of the way we teach, isn't it? How how we deal with that. I mean, I must say that for me, when somebody says, "You tend to do this, that, and the other," I say, "Well, do you tend to do that?" Um, you know, talk about yourself, not not about what the generality wish to do. That's one thing. I mean, and I think Priyavaditas can include some slightly challenging speech. It doesn't have to be nice all the time. You know, I mean, um, well, is that true of you? Um, rather than we're talking about the generality of those horrible human beings. Um, the other thing, well, I mean, I mean, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, but the other thing, because it is an issue, it is an issue of people just making it very abstract. And the other thing is just to have uh, encourage people to take precepts about themselves. So in our introductory course, we talk about the precepts and then we say we invite them to take on a precept to practice as thoroughly as they can for the following well, actually, we say do it for one day. That'll be challenging enough. But it is about then what are you going to do? What are you going to do that's different rather than we're talking about the ills of the world here. We're talking about how we change that, that sort of culture of personal responsibility for our mental states and for our, for our actions. I think that's just something we try and communicate as an ethos, really, rather than this isn't, um, this isn't a debating group about the, end, about the evils of the world. This is, a, this is about us seeking to transform ourselves. So the third of our Samgravastas is Artacharya, uh, beneficial activity. And traditionally, um, in the sort of explications of this, it's said that the most important aspect of this is teaching the Dharma, because that is the most beneficial activity. It's the one that really solves people's problems. So it doesn't rule out sort of acts of kindness, but it does mean that that's, that's the big emphasis is, is on um, teaching the Dharma. 
so that's what I'm going to deal with here, or rather the whole wider issue of how we run classes. Um, and I said earlier that community is contagious, so what we're doing is trying to create a contagious community. And obviously that community is much more contagious if it's characterised by dana, mutually generated dana, if it's characterised by Priyavadita. But um, also, uh, some communities are far more attractive than others. Some communities are far more contagious than others. Uh, some sorts of people are going to exhibit far more dana and Priyavadita than others and be more, um, more attractive. Um, so, uh, yeah, some communities are more attractive than others, depending on the type of people who make them up. Um, so a community of all one age group and gender is not particularly attractive to people of another age group or gender. Um, a community of all troubled and stressed people is not particularly attractive. Um, a community where everybody is very introverted is not very attractive. Um, a friendly, outgoing, emotionally healthy people are attractive. Um, young people are attractive, especially to other young people. Um, idealistic, altruistic people are attractive. Energetic, lively people are attractive. So um, the type of community we attract will have a huge impact on how contagious our community is. And the way we do our teaching, all aspects of our teaching, the way we teach the Dharma will have a huge impact on the type of people we attract. And I think we need to take that into account. Um, and therefore how contagious, in fact, our community is. So this is strongly influenced by how we publicise ourselves, what we teach and how we teach it. And um, I'm going to be contentious now and I expect... Oof, so I'm going to say um, that I would suggest if we want to attract the sort of people who will create a contagious community, that we, and I'll, exp I'll expand on this, that we don't teach the Dharma as a standalone, don't teach meditation as a standalone practice, that we don't teach what somebody's called Dharma light, sort of watered down Dharma to, to make it acceptable to the m m most people that we don't teach things that look a bit like the Dharma but aren't actually the Dharma. And that in fact what we do teach carries a whiff of the transcendental with it. Um, that it's not just about um, integration and uh, positive emotion, that it's got something of the spiritual death and spiritual rebirth in it. And I think this whiff of the transcendental, well, it's what makes us exciting. It's what makes the Dharma exciting. I said we've got two unique selling points. Um, one is Sangha, and the other one, I think, is this whiff of the transcendental. It's what makes what we're offering different from all the self-help and therapy stuff that's out there in the world, of which there's, it's an absolute seller's market on that stuff. And we'd have to do it very, very well to really compete as a sort of, uh, in, that, in that area. But we've got something that others don't. It's a unique selling point. So let's capitalize on that. So that's what I'd like to sort of expand on is those, those points. So um, <clears throat> first of all is um, how we publicize it, publicity. Um, so we can advertise our courses primarily, for example, as meditation and stress release 
and we will attract a community of stressed people. Um, and stress, a community of stressed people is not that attractive. A community of stressed people is not that contagious. So I'm going to recommend to you, to all of us, a booklet called Vision, Energy and Action by Pranya Ketu. Okay. And it's a booklet that he prepared. It's called, Strapline, Inspiring Young Buddhists. And I would say that it's a good guide not just to inspiring young Buddhists, but to inspiring the young of heart. And actually, that quite a lot in it is um, really uh, what we need to do to attract the sort of people who create uh, a who will create a contagious community. And in his booklet, um, he said, uh, "Yeah, so I'd I'd suggest that the sort of things he he um, he suggests will do it." And what he suggests are a few of the things he says: use words, bold bold words communicating that we offer meaning, and he offers a few. Challenge, adventure, training, radical, strength, intensity, expansion, infinity, freedom, and get the book, get the book. It's available, I think, for, well, certainly from him, Pranya Ketu. Okay. Okay, great, great. Uh, yeah, so all of those. And finally, of course, community. So those are words that he suggests using. And he suggests using images that com communicate that sort of thing. Um, a hint of the transcendental, limitless, potential, infinite. He says, use sparingly or not at all. And he said this, not me. Mindfulness, gentle, relaxation, De-stress, peaceful, calm, accepting. I would add to his list, use radical, subversive, and wild. Um, so yeah, I think those are some good advice for attracting the sort of people who will create a contagious community. <clears throat> so yes, what else have we got here? Um, well, that's backwards. Excuse me, my notes have got mixed up. No, we've got to read this. <laughs> Vision, energy, action. No, I'm, I'm saying, excuse me, everybody. I'm Excuse me while I figure out my notes. How embarrassing. Probably do it off the top of my head. Ah, there we go. So I'm going to say, I'm going to suggest um, not teaching meditation as a standalone um, technique. I mean, I think if we teach meditation as a standalone technique, um, then, well, we will tend to attract stressed people. And further down the line, um, we will have a community of stressed people, which isn't very attractive. I'd also say um, that, well, if we attract, if we, if we um, advertise, if, if we teach uh, meditation, then we will, tend to, we, we will tend to attract people who are interested in meditation and not Buddhism. 
And further down the line, we may end up with a sangha of people who are all very into meditation but aren't into our project. They're not into uh, dana, they're not into community. And a little bit of a hint of that, this, uh, this is, oh no, I better not say this. <laughs> all right, I will say it. We I told you about, we recently had a fundraising appeal where we said we need some more money, we're losing money. The, the overall response to that was amazingly positive. We have a meditation group that meets sometimes, at weekends, they meet on weekends, and some of those people are hardly involved in anything else. We had the only, the people who reacted, and there were a couple of people who reacted, so they were all from that group, yeah? They're not up for the same project as everybody else. Um, so I think watch it about using meditation as a way of attracting people in. And I don't think we, I think we do it because we think, well, it will attract people in. But actually the Dharma attracts people in. We, certainly we have absolutely no problem attracting large numbers of people for introductory classes that are on meditation and Buddhism. We get lots of people. And when we ask people what you're interested in, quite a lot of them say Buddhism, actually. So that would be one suggestion, is not to, um, not to, uh, to do just courses in, in, in meditation. I would also say um, avoid Dharma light. Right? I, I think we can tend to want to um, water down what we say to not lose people, to make it acceptable. Um, to be a little bit apologetic um, and um, I think I've been um, yeah I think I but yeah but um, we lose more people by boring them than by challenging them okay and if we water it down uh, in order to keep people what we're likely to do is lose the people who really want the Dharma because we'll bore them. Um, and I think we have to accept that we are going to lose some people, actually. Um, Bante, somewhere or other, says, well, you can expect one in 10 to really respond to what we're saying. So in a way, we don't mind losing nine out of 10, but it's that one. We don't want to put that one off. Uh, we don't want to put those people off who are really going to respond. They're going to be the Sangha of the future. So we don't need to water it down to keep everybody involved. Um, and in fact, um, I think you keep more people involved by making it challenging and exciting. So as I said, I think I've been guilty of trying to water it down a little bit. I remember once I did give a talk. I gave a, a sort of exposition of what the Dharma was, which was really trying to be all things to all men and keep everybody, you know, like it's important for all of you. And afterwards, two women came up to me who are now, who've asked for ordination. This was quite some time ago now. And they said, well, we thought it was about something more than that. And they were really disappointed. Um... So, you know, if you keep doing that, you lose those people and you might keep other people, but they will never constitute a Sangha. I also, um, I discovered about myself that what I sometimes did 
because I didn't have confidence in what I was doing. I didn't have confidence in the Dharma. What I sometimes did was imagine the people in the audience who were going to have doubts and that I had to sort of bring along. I, that, those would be the people I would imagine when I was writing a talk or when I was writing a presentation. So I would write for them and I would put in all the... And, and it, it just didn't work. And I realized this was what I was doing. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to imagine somebody I know and like who's really committed, and then I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to imagine myself talking to them, and that's what I'm going to be talking to in this talk. And what I found was what that does is bring everybody along, actually. I mean, okay, you may lose some people, but it actually creates a much more... You're talking out of inspiration to someone who you think is inspired, and that actually brings people along. And I think it is important how we think... How we think when we're doing talks, I, I think that, you know, who are we talking to? Who are we talking to? Um, and this is, this is on the same subject, but slightly off topic, which is that I also realised I was thinking far too much about what people thought of me and not enough about whether this was beneficial to them. And I sort of tried to have a, have a, um, inculcate an attitude that I didn't mind looking like an absolute fool as long as they got something out of it. Um, and doing meta, to, you know, to really trying to inculcate meta for the audience. And I'll stand up and I'll be a clown, if you like, if that's going to get it across. Um, so I, I really would recommend just trying to... It's a really important part to, to be talking to your audience out of meta and maybe thinking about the people you really like in the audience as you're, as you're, as you're talking. That's slightly off off topic, but um, definitely not talking to the doubters, not talking to the doubters. And um, the third thing I'm going to suggest is not talking to, uh, not, not avoiding things that look like the Dharma but aren't quite. Um, so it's hard enough to get a handle on a Dharma. The Dharma is really it's really not in our sort of normal mental space at all. It's, it's quite different from the way we usually think. If we offer something that's a bit like the Dharma, but actually fits in much more well with worldly ideas, then people will tend to slide off the Dharma onto that. So we have a policy, and I, I, I recommend this policy, of avoiding secular mindfulness, Dharma as therapy, um, etc., etc. Um, there are plenty of places people can get that, and people have come to us and wanted to run <coughs> breathworks courses, and we've said, "Well, that's great, but please do it somewhere else," um, because we want this to be a Buddhist center, unequivocally, unmistakably a Buddhist center, um, not with a, some sort of grey area between the Dharma and other things that people can sort of slide off into. Um, there are loads, there's loads of places people can get that. We're the only show in town for what we're offering, so let's offer it. And I also think that um, if we're offering sort of Dharma as therapy, well, we're probably not that good at it. We're not trained in it. Uh, there are people out there who do it amazingly professionally and amazingly well. Um, what we offer is not what everybody needs, 
let's let them go to someone who can really give them what they need. Let's us offer what we're, what we've, you know, what is our, our really unique contribution, our real gift, which is the Dharma, full and full blown. So that would be my, uh, my that's contentious bit over, hopefully. No? Okay. Anyway, so I think, yeah, that a whiff of the transcendental is really attractive. It's one of our unique selling points. Something, you know, some of those words, infinite, potential, expansion. So I would suggest, um, yeah, that's exciting. That's exciting. So bringing in spiritual death and spiritual rebirth into our teaching, uh, not when I not making it just yeah. So what do I mean by um, bringing in spiritual death and spiritual rebirth? I mean not making it all about feeling good, not making the Dharma about feeling good, making it about transformation, making it about transforming ourselves and transforming the world. There's an absolute seller's market in uh, techniques for feeling good. Um, so yeah and. You know, there's masses of all sorts of therapies and self-help techniques taught very professionally. And anyway, probably that's going to be boring to young people, altruistic people, the sort of people who are going to make our communities contagious. Um, so teaching that the Dharma is about transformation, transformation of self, transformation of the world. So bring in the Lakshanas, I would say bring in the Lakshanas. Uh, talk about impermanence and transience um, and the positive side of that transformation. Um, how we can transform ourselves through the law of karma by taking responsibilities for our action and mental states. How through the law of karma, the way we live now creates the person we will be in the future. And we've got this huge potential beyond what we can imagine at the moment. So impermanence, that side of impermanence. Talk about dukkha how um, we will always be dissatisfied um, if we don't start to grow towards our potential. Um, how worldly life is never going to really cut it. It's never going to really satisfy us. Talk about Anatman, how we don't exist as um, independent individuals, um, autonomous. We're totally enmeshed with others and the world around us. So selfishness is going to be self-defeating. And um, because we're not autonomous, independent individuals, we need to come together with others to create an environment in which we can all flourish. We're not going to be able to do it as, in, as sort of standalone individuals. Um, we need to come together with others to create Sangha. None of us will get anywhere unless we mutually con create a context in which we can all benefit. Um, so Sangha is not an optional extra and the Dharma can't be a private affair that we just do in the privacy of our home uh, on our own. We're all going to need Sangha. I'd suggest talking about how really seeing an Atman, what people often think of as insight, means seeing our dependence on others. Um, for all the benefits we've received, and how the emotional response to really seeing an Atman is gratitude and a desire to serve, um, to contribute. So cultivating gratitude can really transform our uh, response to the world. Um, 
So yes, um, I think it'd be good to, yeah, I'd like to explore that a little bit. I think think those are, um, uh, yeah, ways to do it. And if if that sounds a bit if that sounds a bit daunting, well, you can actually go online and see examples of how to do how to do that. Get really detailed notes and teachers' guides, and indeed videos of people doing it on the Seeker project. Okay, so our the course where, where we do all of that, in fact, it's called Radical Dharma, and it's on the Seeker project. You can get it by going online, um, Seeker Online, www.seekeronline. Um, the, the address is also up in the uh, hall. And um, there was a question about what happens with Mitra's teaching about getting that. Um, you have to have, as it were, an order member sponsor to do that. Um, because it's not spent to be generally available, but it will be made available for Mitra's teaching courses. Um, and the person to contact is Shiba Vuha here. And she says that they're coming up with some way where if, at the moment, what you've got to do is get an order member to back you up, as it were, and then you c they can give you the material. But that doesn't mean you can, you, but you can't look at the videos that way, I would imagine. It's much more difficult. But there, there is, they are, um, they are doing something to make it possible that, if, that you can sort of get entry to it if you've got uh, an okay from an order member. So, um, so there's our course on their Radical Dharma, where we do, we introduce the Lakshanas in this way on week one. Um, we talk a lot about um, Sangha, the need for Sangha. What there is on there is some really quite detailed teacher's notes that you can almost use as a, you can almost use them as a, a script if you want. So you could, you could get people helping you who, you know, maybe are very inexperienced and they can almost follow it as like a script. There's also a more sort of principal summary of the topics discussed if you wanted to less detail. There's short videos about generally how you do each week and then there's long vi longer videos of each week being presented with sort of the boring bits like discussion groups cut out. So there's quite a lot of material on that one. Um, there's also um, <coughs> an LBC course called Journey and the Guide, based on the Journey and the Guide book on there as well, which also, of course, brings in spiritual death and spiritual rebirth. There's rather less material for that, but that's also on there. Uh, our, our second course... Journey and the Guide? Sorry? Where is the Journey and the Guide? It's also on the Sikha Project. Um, so there's three courses on there at the moment, but those are the two I would really recommend from the point of view where I'm coming from, which is to really sort of teach... Um, the Dharma with that whiff of the transcendental and the danger and the excitement of the Dharma rather than the Dharma as a way to feel better. Um, yes, so um, maybe I should stop there and ask for questions. What do you think? Well, I mean, you've got to work with the resources you've got. Um, I mean, I'm not quite sure what you mean by not having the resources. I mean, one of the things I would say is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. So, I mean, one problem with small groups is, well, you know, you've got to come up with this all singing, all dancing Dharma course. Well, that's going to, you know, can I do that? That's going to take time. I've got other things on. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are some really good, I think, well, I should do because I prepared some of it, um, 
material online that can that can really it's designed to make it easy it's designed to make it easy so i mean i don't know your exact situation but i wouldn't have thought it was that much more um demanding to include some dharma in your in the in the class where you teach introductory meditation and then you can bring people up to a certain speed and then this you know then there's more than you can you can take for granted a bit more than just that they can meditate you can also take for granted a bit of a grounding in the dharma the precepts the, the lakshanas etc by the time they get to sanghanite Well, I don't know. I mean, because I mean, it depends a lot on the people and all sorts of other things. But I suppose what I would say is, I think what we tend to do is we tend to present meditation as a standalone because we think that's going to suck people in. And we may be afraid that the Dharma won't, but I think the Dharma does. And I think that um, um, there's quite a lot. There's a lot of interest in ethics. There's a lot of interest in community. There's a lot of interest in living differently. Uh, people are, um, they're, bo they're bored and jaded with the values that are around. So um, when we ask people why they come, which we do always, um, we get some people who are interested mainly in meditation and mainly in sort of uh, better, better mental states, etc. We also get quite a lot of people who are just interested in Buddhism. Um, and by the end of the course, when we ask them what they got out of it, what a lot of people talk about is, is ethics, the Dharma and community, much more than uh, meditation. So I, I suppose I think we can attract people by teaching the Dharma. Well, let's do it. it, it, it it's not going to put people off, actually. It's not, I don't think we have to uh, do meditation only to... Um, uh, to attract people. That's my take on it. I mean, you know, but these are my <laughs> these are my suggestions. You, you know, you need to you need to do it the way that works for you. Well, it's up to you. I wouldn't do it that way because I think it immediately sends a message that medit that what Buddhism is is meditation. That meditation um, uh, uh, um, that meditation is the be all and end all. The other stuff's sort of extra. And I think then it can take a very long while to uh, for that to wear off. Actually, it's called radical dharma teaching that that changes lives. That I'm not sure about the strap line, <laughs> but it does actually. It does. I mean, one of the things I, I find really inspiring is in that six weeks, people actually turn around. People actually change quite dramatically. Uh, see it quite often. Yeah. Mm. And I do wonder, as a child of the 60s, okay, as a child of the 60s, I do wonder, so we started as a, as a movement, we started in the 60s, and in the 60s, there was tremendous, inf uh, it was tremendous sort of um, interest in spiritual experience, and it was particularly like drug-fueled spiritual experience, but if I can't have it drug-fueled because I'm in danger of blowing my fuses, I'll do it some other way. Um, and there's still that interest, but I think there's actually much more interest now in also ethics and um, the other aspects of the Dharma. I wonder whether we're still a bit stuck in a 60s, 70s mentality that meditation is what's really interesting to people, because I think there are other aspects that are actually. Uh, and as I say, just, just simply the fact that we have absolutely no problem 
in attracting large numbers of people to a course that builders meditation in Buddhism. We tell them on the first night, this is a meditation in Buddhism course. We're going to talk about Buddhism before the break. We're going to teach meditation after the break. And that the two are completely interlinked. And then you've established that right from the beginning, that the two are part and parcel of the same thing. So, you know, you do it your way, but that's my suggestion. That's... Um, and I, and I, you know, and I say that partly because I have, you know, in my, I remember, in my very early days of involvement, being in a group where, in the sangha night, there was some, there was several people who said, "Well, I'm a meditator, not a Buddha, Buddhist," and that's just a sheet anchor. It's just a, a drag, on what we do, uh, to have people who are meditators but not Buddhists. It's not what we totally offering, really. Yeah, it can work that way, possibly. But, you know, individual cases, I could tell you lots of, I could, uh, I'll tell you an individual case. Um, so a guy came along, no, no, I'll save this one for later, I'll save this one for later. Okay, okay, I, I won't save this one for later. I'll say one of the objections, one of the objections often is, it's related to that, is yes, but there will be um, troubled people come along there will be troubled people come along, and if we, and so it's a duty on us to offer something that's going to help them. Well, two things about that. I'm not sure that, in, you know, if we're talking psychological therapies, that we've got the skills to do that. But secondly, I think that very often what the problem is with people is that they they lack meaning in their lives, and it's because they lack meaning in their lives, they're directionless, they get depressed, they get into drugs, etc., etc., etc. And that offering meaning can actually be the way that we really save people who are in, who are in very troubled states. And there's a particular guy I have in mind because I know him quite well, uh, and he's asked me to be his preceptor. And he came along. He's a punk, and he came along as a proper punk, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and he had. Uh, uh, he was a mess. I mean, he was into all sorts of drug stuff, and he was very angry and. And he came along on the back of a, a nearly successful suicide attempt, which really, really quite damaged his health. And he was dragged along by his girlfriend, who thought that meditation would help him. And uh, he describes himself as sitting in the back, going, go on, hippies, make me happy. <laughs> by the end of the six-week course, he was a different man. And what he said is, you've saved my life. You have saved my life. And it's about, it's to, to do with meaning. It's to do with meaning and community. And he's lit he said this over and over again, you've saved my life. This has saved my life. So there was somebody who was very, very troubled, who, um, whose life was changed, life was saved by, it was the, and it was the Dharma more than meditation. It was the ethics uh, more, and, and the general Dharma. One of the things that he really responded to was Anatman, actually, and the, and the idea that we can change. Um, so he said he thought he was a particular sort of person and just doomed to be negative and bullshit, and, you know, that's who he was. And he said on the very first night, just that message that we can change, that we are not fixed, that... that, that um, was complete revelation to him. I mean, that sounds so simple, doesn't it? But he, he reckons that that changed his life, just hearing that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
I'm making suggestions. You do it your way, but I'm making suggestions about um, how I think it, it's, you know, it, there's always going to be exceptions. There are always going to be people who wouldn't have come if it wasn't meditation, but I'm talking about what's, what I think works in a generality um, most effectively. And we used to do it that way. We used to, I mean, we used to teach meditation um, and as a standalone thing. And it's one of the things we changed to try to really ginger up the centre, to really make the centre um, work. I mean, we, we present that course, Radical Dharma, to complete newcomers, right? To complete newcomers. And overall, the response is very, very good. You lose a few people, but a lot of people finish. There's a lot of positivity around, a real buzz around it. I don't, I don't see why, if you've got a group that have mainly been brought in through meditation, uh, you couldn't say, now we're going to do this Radical Dharma course. I mean, do have a look at the course. Do have a look at the course. Because, I mean, you know, there's skillful means involved as well. It's not like, here it is. It's, uh, you know... You know, it does introduce the Sangha, it does introduce the Lakshanas in week one, but it's not like, it's, uh, you know, it's done, in a, it's done in a way that I hope draws, draws people in and gradually sort of, um, yeah. I mean, and all I can say is if it doesn't, uh, we present it often with, uh, so usually we present it with a team, and some of that team will be GFR Mitras who've got very little teaching experience sometimes. The, 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 um, the material is designed to make it easy, yeah. basically. Um, well, what I'd say about that, as the person who uh, compiled the foundation year, is it was compiled for Mitras. Yeah, they are Mitras. Oh, they are Mitras. Okay, they've asked for Mitras, okay. Mm. Mm. I don't know. I mean, uh, the, the, the words that... Sorry? They're not brand new people. Okay, look, it was designed. I did. It was dis, It was designed. It was designed as a. The, the the background to it is, the background to that course actually is that um, we changed back way, but way back early two thousands, we changed the criteria for being a mitra. The criteria for being a mitra had been quite hard and fast. They'd been, you have to have a daily meditation practice. You must be a vegetarian and various things like that. You have to work, and, and that, those criteria, um, what it, I mean, what it felt like was people came along and they got really enthused and you went, well, I'm not sure about that. You had to have these really embarrassing discussions with people about, you know, their eating habits and things like that. There, hang on. So there were people that I was having to say, I'm not sure you can be a Mitra, uh, on grounds that would have excluded some people in my chapter, like they didn't have daily meditation practices, for example. And um, so the, the, the criteria were changed. They were relaxed quite significantly. And before that, it was taking years for people to become Mitras. They'd had quite a big exposure to the Dharma. And now we said you can become a Mitra after six months. And some people were becoming Mitras quite early, six months, a year into it. So we thought, I thought, just in terms of Sheffield, we need a front end to this course. If people are going to become Mitras that early, we need a front end to this course. So I was doing it, keeping in front of my Mitra group. Right? I'd got a new Mitra group and I was having to sort of <laughs> keep in front of them. And then 
some other groups started as well, and they were going faster than me, and they were using this, and I was having to come up with this material week by week. And, and that, that's, how it, that's how it evolved, actually. But it was designed for Mitras, so the idea was, um, this is for people who think of themselves as Buddhists, who are seeking to practice the five precepts, and who regard us as their context. Uh, so then people use it for people who don't think of themselves as Buddhists, aren't necessarily committed to the five precepts, and, uh, and don't necessarily regard us as their, pro uh, as their, as their um, context. And maybe some bits of it then are quite difficult. Uh, I mean, I don't know the bits... Yeah. Well, in a way, you know, in a way, I think being challenging and even, you know, some of it, the Dharma's mysterious. Mm. I don't understand it. Uh, you know, there's bits of the... And it, in a way, it's sometimes just hinting at something which is beyond our comprehension. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, sorry? Yeah, yeah. It seems to work okay. I mean, so I do think that having that sense of there's more, there's always more, there's depth. There's Gambira here um, that I'm not quite getting, but I don't know quite what it is. But it's exciting. Yeah. I don't think that's a problem, actually. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. And I think that's better than reducing it to some sort of common sense thing that's not that different from quite a lot of the other stuff that's out there. <laughs> I have to accept it because so many, so many centres are doing it. So many centres are doing it. Well, people do. Uh, loads and loads, loads and loads of centres. I mean, we used to have this, it was a joke at Mitra convenience meetings because people would say, oh, I'm, I've got a pre-Mitra group we're using the first year. And I'd say, well, it's not meant for that. Um, but it's so many centres. I mean, it depends how your centre's working, but quite a lot of centres need to, need to have something like it. They need to have some sort of structured, reasonably long-term course to, to get people involved. So, you know, I just swallow my objections and, um, yeah. Um, well, we do, we do seek to attract young people. And we do seek to attract, I mean, I, we do seek to attract men, actually, because I think most Buddhist centres have a difficulty with attracting young people and attracting men. And we want, it's not that we don't want women, but we think we have to maybe make a special effort to attract men. Um, we have tried... There are various sort of specific groups we've tried to target. There's a lot of climbers in Sheffield. They tend to be into training. They tend not to necessarily be... They've often stayed around in order to climb rather than uh, to follow a career, so they're often a bit more radical. We've tried to target them. We've got quite a lot of climbers in the Sangha, things like that. But um, it's not that we're trying to... Yeah, we, I mean, there is an, there is an attempt to, to, to make us young person friendly. And there is, we have tried to take on a few things uh, around getting, uh, uh, involving men. We have a policy that the, um, we always have um, a mix of ages. We teach with teams and we ha always have a mix of ages and genders on, on, on the team. <laughs> yeah. Well, young at heart, yeah. I mean, um, the nature of our Sangha has changed with the introduction of the Dana economy. Um, we used to have much more, it was much more uh, middle-aged professionals, actually, who were very, that was great because they all had loads of money. 
we've got a lot more young people now. We notice the sort of um, average donation, etc., has gone down quite. Average standing order has gone down quite considerably. But uh, you know, there's a sort of liveliness about it. We have tried to. You know, we are. It's not that we're. There are certain groups that it's easier. That almost our traditional clientele, and we don't have to work very hard at that. But there are others that we'd like to include. It's not that they're not welcome. Well, you're not alone. I think that's the thing, you know. So we're all we've all responded in that way, and actually there are people out there who respond in that way, and they're the people who are going to create what I'm calling a contagious community. Um, I wonder what the time is. Can somebody tell me? <coughs> Five o'clock. Would you like to break into small groups to discuss? I've got a few questions that you might. Well, we could we could talk about them now. But um, do we present the Dharma just as a way to feel good? Um, do I water down the Dharma to keep people on board? How could we be more confident in presenting the more challenging aspects of the Dharma? And also, how could we involve more people in classes? And this book, which I recommend, he's got some quite pokey questions that he's, he's suggesting people ask. Who creates your publicity? Can you involve young people in the process of creating your publicity? What is your centre team's vision of Sangha? How do they express this at events? And this one I particularly like. What is the feeling of energy at your events? Exciting, rambunctious and challenging? Or quiet and peaceful? What might you do to increase the energy levels? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll tell you what we do. So we have two, two introductory courses. We have a six-week... Um, introductory course, six-week follow-on, which is based on the Noble Eightfold Path. And we managed to get the Noble Eightfold Path in in six weeks while doing two weeks on emotion. <laughs> the second week on emotion we do on, basically, on we talk about how uh, we need to get our deep depths on our side. And so at that point we introduced the idea of um, archetypal images, ritual, mantra, we show people, we've got this exercise where we show people a big picture of the Buddha and um, say, well, what does it communicate to you? So we're talking about the language of images. Um, and, well, it's, it's going to go up online, this, this course, but basically we devote a whole week to trying to get people, I suppose what it is, it's trying to give people's rational mind an excuse for accepting this sort of transrational stuff, really. So we try and explain it, and usually it works. Actually, we get quite—you know—we don't get a lot of reaction to puja or anything like that. People uh, people take to it quite well, um, and so that's in the second six weeks. So that would be introduced on basically the ninth week of somebody's involvement. We would start talking about archetypal images, bodhisattvas, Buddhas and bodhisattvas, ritual. Um, there tends to be a little bit of a down step after that. But you lose people, you know. Um, um, and it, um, it does seem to um, ease the path quite a lot. And some people get very inspired by it. I mean, some people are, that's like, oh, well, great, I've been waiting for this. Where was, where was this before, sort of thing. Do people often ask the question, is it compulsory? Um, no, but I make the point that it's not. I make the point that it's possible to be involved 
without um, uh, without really getting into you know without really getting into that side of things. And I sort of have to make that because uh, I know order very senior order members who don't don't really take to that side of things. So I say there's it's quite you know it's like there's quite a wide road here, and if that's an obstacle for you, don't butt yourself up against that obstacle. Go go round it. No, we that that we um, we ha we have quite a quite a sort of define what we call pathway. So people join. Uh, they we we advertise a six week course. We get towards the end of that six week course, and we start saying things like, um, "Well, um, you're invited to the second one." It's completely free, so that's easy. We also talk about how well you need to stay in touch with the sangha and Atma and all of that. We need to be creating sangha. And so they move on to a second six-week course. At the end of the second six-week course, we say, we very clearly signpost your next step is Sanganite. Um, I find it best not to give people choices and to keep cohorts of people together. If we're trying to create community, we want to keep cohorts of people together. So those people move through those courses together with the people who led, lead the course and indeed the team that supports the course. And then those people move on to Sanganite. So the same people would be in their discussion group on Sanganite. It would depend a little bit on the timing. Um, I mean, as I say, we do purges every six to eight weeks on Sanganite. We probably wouldn't, we wouldn't hit them with one on their first, uh, on their first evening. Some of them come on retreat. We do four retreats a year. Some of them come on retreat fairly early. We don't find purger a problem. Actually, we find that people take to puja quite well. I think we do do quite a good job of explaining it, what it's about, so they sort of don't just dismiss it out of hand. I think, but I think there might be a bit of a change in the zeitgeist around things like that, that people are more accepting of it than they used to be earlier. But we just don't find it a problem, really. And, and a lot of people, surprising number of people, just really take to puja. We don't do it on the course because I tried this once. <laughs> I had this terrible, terrible experience of um, I, I did a group for students, and there are about four of them, and um, we ended up with about four of them. And I'd, I'd said we were going to do a sevenfold puja that week, so I went ahead and did it with me and three people following on, and it was the most embarrassing. It was like. Uh, and, and we've also tried to do mantra where you've got a whole class of beginners and they're not into it and it's just like dreadful. So I think that they need to have their introduction to it with a whole load of people who are into it, basically. I mean, one of the things I meant to say in talking about uh, what we might include in our Dharma teaching, which I didn't, is also the, you know, some of the more challenging stuff from Bhante. So the Bodhisattva ideal. Um, the idea that we are creating Sangha, that's what we're about, and uh, indeed the new society. And I find that people do, do respond very positively to that, actually. There's quite a lot of idealistic people out there who want their idealism to go somewhere. There's not much, there's not much scope for <coughs> idealism in the world at the moment. People really respond. So I hope that, you know, I've, I've sort of expressed what, uh, you know, my views anyway. Um, but also, you know, I, I think that they've, I feel quite confident about it because what I see is that quite a lot of it's worked actually. Quite a lot of it's worked in our in our context. Um, 
but as I say, every context is completely different. You do have to sort of look at what you've got, and particularly your resources, um, and yourself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, I do, th I do think that there's something really magical about having confidence in the Dharma, confidence in what we do, presenting it confidently, uh, not presenting it apologetically. And I do think that we have do have these really, really strong, unique selling points, which is the Sangha and uh, the proper Dharma, the proper Dharma with all the, the excitement that comes that comes with it. Um, a few things on the sort of uh, between Artacharya and exemplification. Um, one of the things is I think it's a really good idea, if we can, to if either present classes as a team or at least to have a team that supports the classes and to really treat building Sangha with that team as, as an end in itself, actually. Um, so we have... We probably have a team of 10 or 12 supporting Sanghanite, and we have similar sized team supporting an introductory class actually. And we sort of, as an open invitation to come and help support the introductory class. And we make the point that um, it's about being friendly. There may be other things you can do, but if nothing else, just come and be friendly. Um, and um, we treat that as a sort of mini Sangha. So we have, a, we have team meetings where people report in and um, you know, there's more goes on, and we try and we try and enthuse them. And there's more goes on there than just. Um, it's not just instrumental about running the class. It's also about building sangha among that among that group of people. So I mean, it's, I think it's worth just thinking, whatever your situation, about how 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 we can get invite people in to help run things, and even invite people in to help um, deliver. Actually. The, the Radical Dharma course, as I was saying, is, is designed to be delivered by, we suggest, between two and four people. And because it's so, the notes are so, um, so detailed, you can actually get somebody who's quite inexperienced at teaching to do it, actually, with you, um, with an order member or with, with something like that. We tend to have, we tend to use four. I think that's too many, actually. You, don't, you, get, you hardly get to say anything. You sort of end up the evening thinking, well, yeah, I didn't do anything. Um, but the, um, obviously, there's an, it really brings people on to be to be um, have to be shown confidence, and 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 to to actually be part of doing what we're doing. It makes them feel really part of it, and um, also just constant changes of uh, voice and energy really keep people engaged in what you're doing. I mean told that people have got very short attention spans these days um, but if you keep changing voice and energy it really keeps people involved so I think that's something else to think about is how how we can uh, get people involved early and as much as possible if anyone shows any sort of real interest so yeah I don't have a great deal else to say um, most of what I had to say is around uh, dana and um, classes um, obviously, Artacharya is not just limited to um, classes. It's also about having a community where people help each other. Volunteering comes into that, but just people helping each other, just encouraging that sort of ethos. Uh, and exemplification comes into us being part of that, I suppose. Um, but I think it's really worth um, giving some thought to just how, 
how we run classes and what, what we do in them. If anyone would like to, to well, for start, we've got the SICKER online. It's www.sicker.online. Two courses on there I'd recommend are Radical Dharma, which is great, and The Journey and the Guide, which follows the, um, it follows the, the, the system of practice, so it's got uh, spiritual death and spiritual rebirth in it. The other class on there is um, Life with Full Attention, which is um, it's pretty much a secular mindfulness course, as far as I can see, so it's not what, for me, it's not what I'm interested in doing. Um, if you want to talk to me either about Dharma economy or anything to do with our courses or anything to do with what I've been talking about, I'd be very happy to, to um, correspond or talk on the phone. Get in touch with me at vidania at btinternet.com. It's on there. Um, other than that, well, uh, we introduced Hartika. At the end of the Hartika Sutta, the Buddha says, uh, well done, Hartika, well done. Everybody in the past who has gathered such a community as you have did it by practicing dana, priyavadita, artacharya, and samanatita. Everybody in the future who will gather a community such as you have gathered will do it by practicing um, th those same four things. So that's a pretty strong recommendation from the Buddha about thinking about uh, the four samgrahavastis as the sort of basis of the way we, the way we teach. Or in practice. Thank you. That's all I have to say.